I like to know the ending, but I don't always. So in terms of plotting, I won't go, then this is going to happen in each chapter. I kind of just go, all right, I've got to introduce my characters. I've got to show you what's bothering them, what they want in their life. So yeah, it's looking at the goals and their dreams, their past, their job, all that kind of stuff. And then I throw them into the situation and I kind of just write and hope for the best. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Each week on The Convo Couch, I'll be chatting to a wide range of women writers, focusing on the heart, craft and business of writing, along with a new release feature author each month. You can listen to the episodes on any of the major podcasting platforms, or directly from the Rights for Women website, where you'll also find the transcript of each chat and the extensive Rights for Women backlist. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can check out my website at pamelacook.com.au. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo Couch and chat to this week's guest. My guest today on the Convo Couch is best-selling Australian author Rachel Johns. An English teacher in a previous life, Rachel is now an Arbia-winning author, writing across a number of genres, including romance, rural romance, and women's fiction, or Rachel's own preferred terminology, life lit, which is great. I love it. Her recent books include The Patterson Girls, Something to Talk About, Just One Wish, and Flying the Nest. Rachel is currently Australia's leading writer of contemporary relationship stories around women's issues, so a perfect guest to have on Rights for Women. Jilted, her first rural romance, won Favourite Australian Contemporary Romance in 2012, and the Patterson Girls won the 2016 Romance Writers of Australia Ruby Award, and also the 2015 Australian Book Industry Award for General Fiction. She continually places in Booktopia's Top 50 Aussie Authors poll. I first met Rachel back in 2014, at my very first RWA conference in Fremantle, WA, when we were both writing rural romance. We have a shared mania for stocking our bookshelves with books on writing craft and have often compared notes about our own respective writing processes and pretty much agreed we don't know what they are. All this has led me to invite Rachel onto the podcast today to see if we can pin down what her process is for getting from that first seed of an idea to the end of a first draft. So listen in while Rachel and I compare notes on the Convo Couch. Rachel, welcome to the Convo Couch at Rights for Women. Oh, thanks, Pam. I'm always happy to come talk to you. Yeah, maybe two books ago, I chatted to you for the podcast and you've got a brand new book out in one month from today. Yes, How to Mend a Broken Heart. (laughs) Yeah, with that gorgeous purple cover. It is a pretty cover. I'm, I have been blessed by the cover fairies over the years, I have to say. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that today and we're going to be talking about writing processes and uh, we chat sometimes on social media and different things come up about the writing process and I think there was some post last week where we were both saying, oh, we don't really have a writing process and we don't know what it is. So <laughs> I definitely <laughs> feel that way. I, I know people always ask, so what's your writing process or how do you write a book? And it's like, oh. I wish you could tell me. Also, I think it's a lot about being a bit more organised. I haven't kept records of how I've done everything, which I think looking back it would be kind of good to have. I'm getting yelled at by various people when I say this, but I I don't keep notebooks and stuff once they're finished. They're so messy that I get rid of them. And oh, so really? then I can't even go back a few books and go, okay, so how? what were the notes like to start with? So, And my memory is failing me these days, so I don't trust it. <laughs> Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, I'm a little bit like you in that I sometimes sit down to think, what is my process? And I don't really know either. I do keep my notebooks, but I 
having said that, I never really go back and look at them. So there's some things, I guess, that are common that I do use, like index cards and the last few books I've used Scrivener and things like that. You've got way more of a process than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go back to the start. Where do you get your ideas and then the development of those ideas and getting them onto that end of that first draft period because I think talking to different writers and particularly a lot of aspiring or emerging writers a lot of them get stuck part way and end up with a drawer full of half-finished manuscripts yeah. so I think that's something that is going to be hopefully of benefit to everybody who's listening mm-hmm. so let's start with ideas are you I have a million ideas and no, no time to write them person or are you a one idea at a time sort of girl I used to be more I had more ideas so I've been writing now about 25, almost 25 years, not published all that time. And I think in the initial years and even the first few years of publication, so I think now it's 10 years since I've been published, I definitely had more ideas. They came more frequently and I always knew while I was writing a book, which is sometimes a bad thing. You mentioned before people abandoning kind of books in the middle, halfway through. And I think one of the reasons that happens is because you get a new shiny idea or another idea you want to write seems like it must be so much better than the one you're currently writing, which is when you're in the thrust of it all, it never feels like it's going well or I feel that way. So I think a lot of people just go, oh, I'm going to try the next idea because that will be the better book. And so you've got to get to a stage where you go, well, I'm just going to finish this one and have faith in this one and, and not go for the next shiny idea all the time. So I definitely used to have that and I actually quite liked that because and when I did get around the halfway point of books, it'd always be like, oh, this is really bad and I don't know how to finish it and it's boring and all these horrible thoughts that come into your head that are not necessarily true, I've learned now. It doesn't mean it's easy to ignore them, but they always come sort of mid-book, I feel. You know, maybe it's that mid-book slump where you kind of, you've set everything up and then now you've got to kind of keep things going a little bit before the really exciting sort of dramatic parts happen at the end. I would always, yeah, get a new idea around then and so that was actually quite comforting I never let myself work on it maybe you know write a couple of notes or something but never let myself actually write it but knowing that I had the next idea I would start thinking about it in my head so while I was writing that one you know I'd be fantasizing and daydreaming about the next idea and I felt good knowing what I had to write and so I never would say I was probably one of those people that had millions of ideas Mm. I would say I've got lots of things I would like to write about so but they're not ideas I don't even know if you'd call them seeds there's there's a few issues there's sort of a couple of characters that I would like to write about like sort of a setup I suppose different things so they're there but I wouldn't say that they're like a lot of ideas waiting if that makes sense they're yeah. just things I would kind of like to explore one day like I hear people say oh I've got too many ideas I'll never get to write them all and I don't necessarily feel that ideas are everywhere for me. I can see a newspaper article and think, oh, that would make a good story, but I'm not sure how to make that story, if that makes sense. Like I saw someone on Facebook a couple of uh, months ago had posted a photo of an email like from a a resort in America and it was saying you need to choose your your sort of table that you're going to have when you come to stay at the resort. You you can choose a table by the pool or you can choose a table here that will be yours. And the email was not actually to them, it was to someone else. But they said they'd been getting someone else's emails for 10 years and all the junk mail and stuff. And there was a bit of a story on there. And I thought, oh, I like that idea, you know. But that's some of the things that I think, oh, that would make a good story. But how? You know, and it's a matter of taking all those. So I think I get lots of those little things daily that, oh, yeah, this would be something good to write about. But I don't feel that they're solid ideas. And so, yeah, I'd say I'm more someone who is a one book one idea person at a time even though there's lots of things I would like to write about does that make sense (laughs) yeah it makes perfect sense to me because I'm exactly the same you know I think it was this morning actually like I follow humans in New York on um, Instagram and Facebook and it'll be a family issue or a relationship issue or something I think oh that'll make a great story I never take the time usually to bother to write it down and then later on, I'll think, oh, what was that? What was, you know, that? What was that idea? That, <laughs> and you, you have know. to end up scrolling through all the things. Like one thing I've been interested about for a few years, and I've even pitched my publisher, the next book that I'm contracted to write is supposed to be this book. And it's about multi-level marketing, a bunch of women who are all involved in sort of a, a multi-level marketing scheme type thing. And I'm really fascinated about that concept and how it can become very cult-like and, you know, they prey on mm. sort of vulnerable people sometimes. And a few people do really well. 
and I feel like I need to write this because it's something I'm fascinated about and I've been thinking about for a while, but at the same time, I don't feel like I'm ready, but then I'm scared someone else will come along. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm pretty sure you've read Big Magic. Yes. Gilbert, you know, we often talk about craft books, but... I've got it right here. (laughs) Oh, yay. (laughs) And exactly that that concept. Yeah, that story she talks in, in there about, I think it was State of Wonder was the book and she had the idea for the book and had let it sit there and not done anything with it. And then when she met Anne Patchett for lunch one day, Anne Patchett recited this story she was writing and it was exactly the same idea so I think about that a lot and I do I love her idea as well but there are ideas that are flying around and it might land on you but then if you don't listen and you don't you know or say I'm doing something else I'm doing something else and and so often that I think once you are you know a contracted writer and you're writing books all the time you are focused on what you have to do so sometimes an idea might come along that you can't um give attention to so I'm very scared about that that it'll and I, I feel this happens with me sometimes with ideas like I got the, the thing that I wanted to write about, that concept of marketing kind of a few years ago, but I was contracted to other things. And now I think it's been with me for so long that it's almost been too long. And so idea can get stale if that yeah. makes sense. You don't actually jump on it when you're passionate about it. So it's a really hard balance between, yeah, abandoning books halfway through because you've got something better. So yeah, I, I think that whole big magic concept is, is fascinating. Um, and there's a few other things that I really like to write about too. And, you know, if I've told my agent, my publisher, they're like, oh yeah, that's a really, really good idea. But I actually don't feel like I can write it, which is possibly me mentally just sort of stopping myself, which mm. is stupid because I, I think the more books I write, the more I do that. Whereas previously I would have just gone, okay, I want to write a book about four women in a multi-level marketing. I'm just going to start. I'm going to write it. And yeah. it'll, it'll, And I love listening to Marianne Key's talk too about, you know, you know, just trust her gut and trust the magic kind of thing. And I, that's what I've always done. And I think lately I sometimes doubt that that's okay. You know, I think, oh, I should be doing more planning or I should be doing this. But everyone writes differently. And I think in some ways my process is to take quite a vague idea and to just go for it. But that's scary because, you know, it might not work out. And when I'm doing it for a job now, I need it to work out. Another thing Elizabeth Gilbert said, which I really um, relate to as well, you possibly will um, agree, I'd say. A lot of writers would agree. She talks about how you should not let your passion pay your bills because Mm. then you shouldn't rely on your passion to pay your bills because then it puts a pressure that that does, you know, sometimes hinder creativity. Yeah, it's sort of that rock and a hard place, isn't it? Because you are doing what you love for a and job. Exactly. So many people but, um, say, like, oh, it's my dream, you know, I can't wait till I can quit my job and write full time. And I'm always like nowadays, don't necessarily rush because, you know, being in another job, being out with different people that are not necessarily in the writing world, it gives you ideas, you hear how people talk, it refills the well. Whereas when I stopped working and write full time, suddenly I'm just by myself in a room. I'm not experiencing the world as much. So I think it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It's, it's the dream. But then, yeah. as I guess with all dreams, not, nothing is completely positive, if that makes sense. No, I think that's really interesting. So, Rach, once you get the idea, what's the next step for you? I guess coming into involved with this question is, are you a plotter or a pantser? Mm-hmm. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how to mend a broken heart in terms of where that idea came from and then how you did, then developed that. Sure. I would say... I don't believe anyone's completely a plotter and anyone's completely a pantser, but a lot of authors are way more plotter than me. You know, I hear Jane Harper and Sally Hepworth talk about mm. their outlines and the outlines are almost first drafts in terms of, you know, the, the detail that's in there per scene and what it's got to do. I definitely don't do that. I love the, uh, the thought of it. It's like it would be a nice safety blanket, you know, you've got it sort of written out there and it's going to work out. You've just got to, you know, add the embellishments and things like that. But when I say I'm a pantser, it doesn't mean that I just literally sit down at the computer and and start writing and hope for the best, although maybe I should, maybe that's what <laughs> I always know when I start a lot about character. To me, most of my stories are character-focused and, you know, the plot is not secondary exactly, but it, it, it's expound along the way because of the way the characters act. And that's one of the things I learned when I very first put, I should say, fingers to keyboard when I was 17 and I wrote a terrible terrible book but I thought great I can play God I can manipulate these characters and make them do what I want to do which I can't do in real life which is really annoying but but I thought now I've learned you know 20 odd years later 
that no, that's not necessarily the case. I can't play God because characters become real people and they dictate they won't do certain things because of the way their personality is or what's happened to them in the past. So say for How to Mend a Broken Heart, which I'm calling it a semi-sequel because it does take one character from one of my previous books, Art of Keeping Secrets, and it takes her four years on and her daughter as well. So her daughter wasn't a main character in the first book. And it sort of shows where she's at four years after what happened in the first book, which was a traumatic experience for her, end of her marriage. And so I knew I had characters there. So that was kind of a little bit easier. But what was inspired kind of this book, I I always wanted to write a book set in New Orleans in America because I'd been there a couple of times, absolutely really loved it, the whole history, the the haunted element, Mm. the beautiful buildings, the art, the music, the food. So much. I just loved the place. And I think it's a place you love or you hate, but I, I fell into the love it so I a few years I knew I wanted to write a book about New Orleans and that's I guess where I say I've got things I want to write about but it's not time yet yeah and so that was there the fact people were asking me for a sequel to the art of keeping secrets was there in my head another thing with this book so sort of three key inspiring parts one's the setting one is the fact that people wanted a continuation of flick story and the third one is the only book that I read in high school English I was shocking was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Right. And I love the character of Miss Havisham who was jilted on her wedding day and then wore her wedding dress for the rest of her life basically and was bitter against men and all. And I always kind of wanted to do a modern-day Miss Havisham character. So those three things have been in my head for a while and then I decided I was going to put them together. Uh, So I already had the characters but I had to remind myself about Flick. I had to work out who the other main characters were. And what I do then is work, give them a job, I suppose. I, I, I give them a personality. And one of the books that I always sort of look at when I'm starting planning a novel is The Complete Writer's Guide to Heroes and Heroines, 16 Master Archetypes. So yeah. I, I have an idea in my head, you know, that say Zoe, the character, is the daughter in Hard to Meet a Broken Heart. She's artistic. She's a little bit flighty, but she's really passionate. And, you know, she's got married young to a high school sweetheart. She's got all these ideals. So I knew that she was, say, a little bit like a free spirit. So that's one of the, the archetypes in this book. I go there and then I write all the things that sort of relate to me. I, I sort of select an archetype that already feels right for me and then I write a whole load of notes about what that type of character would be and I find that this book often um, gives me inspiration about different scenes or occupation. So to me, jobs are really important to my characters. They sort of give you an idea of the type of person, you know, that does certain things that, and then you can twist that a bit. So I'll always choose a job, I'll always choose an archetype and then also think about what sort of shaped them so another book that I love is the the emotional wound thesaurus by um, oh yeah I love Angela that Ackerman and Becca Publisi. Mm. I mean that has a whole load, and I don't necessarily always use that, but if people are looking for a, a specific something that's happened to their, their characters past, that can help inspire you. But I do know what shaped them and what bad thing I suppose has happened to them, whether it's just the beginning of the book or whether it's you know something from childhood. It's all character thinking. I like to know the ending but I don't always so in terms of plotting I won't go then this is going to happen in each chapter I kind of just go all right I've got to introduce my characters I've got to show you what's bothering them what they want in their life so yeah it's looking at the goals and their dreams their past their job all that kind of stuff that sort of creates them to be a real person to me and then I throw them into the situation and I kind of just write and hope for the best um I know there's a lot of books that give you all the different things you're supposed to do, whether it's three-act structure or six. If I'm floundering, sometimes I'll think, oh, I better, I've got to do that. But then I really start panicking and it actually stresses me out more if I'm, I've worked out. If I'm trying to know those things, I've got to do it more organically. And I love Marianne Keyes. She said the, um, when I listened to her recently on her Instagram, I don't know if you saw any of Oh, no, I keep meaning to go back and watch that. I hope yeah, she's I mean, got it there. You should, she does still have it there, I think. Yes. And it's, she's a really organic sort of um, intuitive writer, I guess. You know, she said she doesn't know about three-act structure. And I love that because that's exactly how I feel. And that is scary because mm. I don't know whether you're going to write way too much of a setup or, yeah. or whatever. But, yeah, the best books I've written, I think I've, I've been really just letting the characters sort of take shape and just really trusting that there is an ma- element of magic. I think that's why I like Elizabeth Gilbert's big yeah. magic book. And sometimes, you know, you'll find you write something. I've got examples of this in one of my books, uh, Early Rural Romances, Mandrout. I, I've got a main hero heroine and her two best friends 
And I didn't know, you know, anything about the two best friends. I just knew that I wanted to have two best friends at the beginning of the book. So I was like, I've got to do something with them to make them different on the page. I'm like, okay, one can be pregnant and the other one can be really into fashion and loves reading magazines and that kind of stuff. I just did that. No no, no thought to why. And then the woman who's pregnant, her baby ends up being delivered by, by the hero, spoiler, and it's actually a really big part of the book. But I never thought, oh, I'm going to have a baby born in the in yeah. the, the book that the hero so I think sometimes when those things happen you've really just got to go with it and not censor yourself in that first sort of draft so you're setting up you're getting your characters sorted and then as you say throwing them into a situation but then also trusting that process and the other thing Rach that struck me as you were talking even if you're not ticking off you know first turning point and second turning yeah. point technically I'm sure that since high school English, you've read loads of books. Yes. <laughs> and yes, you've, I have. Written, you've written loads of books as well. And so you'd have an innate understanding of where those things should happen anyway. Yeah. And I think that's a big key. I mean, whenever I say I only read one book in high school English, and I was even thinking a few seconds ago, I'm like, oh, I need to tell you that I have since then become a reader. <laughs> like I found reading around the time I found writing. And probably now, if I had to choose between reading and writing, if someone held a gun to my head and said, you can only do one or the other for the rest of your life, I'd probably choose reading. You know, I love reading so much. Um, And I think reading, that's the best teacher, definitely. And that's, I think, why another reason why it took me so long to get published. (laughs) There's lots of different reasons and elements of luck and things like that too. But I didn't have that background of a lot of reading. So I had a lot of catching up to do in terms of knowing how a story is shaped just because it's, intuitive the more the more you read you kind of just know I remember a few years ago I was talking to Helene Young who we both know and I had I think I must have been doing a workshop or something and I know that she'd done a lot at the time and I said to her what are your workshops and she sent me a list of all the things I said oh I need to come to your workshops I don't know anything about any of those things and she said Rachel you do you do it you know I've read your books it's there so I, I do think that there's you know there's more than two types of writers but there's definitely those who have more of a structured process I suppose and things they follow and they do know more they're going but there's just as many writers in the world someone like James Patterson I'm sure he says you have to plot you know that you cannot write a book without plotting yet Stephen King and Leah Moriarty don't at all Marianne Keyes doesn't you know and they are all equally successful big name authors I think all of us would agree that they know what they're doing yeah so there is no one right way to do it but It's like diets. Whenever I like see a glossy magazine in the supermarket, you know, the checkout, and it's like, oh, what, lose five kilos fast. I mean, <laughs> yes, finally, someone's going to tell me how to do this. And it's always just exercise and eat less. Yeah. <laughs> and, so there is no secret kind of thing, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. No, very true. So once you've got your idea, you've sorted out your characters and you sit down and you start writing, is then it just a matter for you of, of basically writing through to the end? Do you yep. revise as you go or what um, happens in that stage? Well, first thing, I'm very chronological. I very, very rarely, like probably five times in all my writing career, have I gone ahead and jumped and written a scene that, you know, is not following from something else. Yeah. So I have to write chronologically. Even if I kind of know what's coming and I'm stuck, I just can't move on until I fix the bit there. That's a part of me. I've learnt. Sometimes I'll write an epilogue. If that, that's come to me, a few of my books I've written the epilogue about halfway through and that's always feels good. But yeah. apart from that, I write chronologically and um, I sit down, I kind of work out, okay, I've got, you know, four months to write a book. I need to write this many words per day. I'm such a slow learner and I still don't take into account the fact that, hey, Someone will be sick probably and, you know, my computer might break for a week and I, I, I should, you know, allow myself that extra time but I still haven't managed to do that. When I'm writing and I think I'm going to re-look at this but my aim is usually 2,000 words a day, five days a week, so 10,000 words and I, I might not always get there. Sometimes I might get over 2,000. I find if I write anything like 3,000 in a day, then I'm stuffed for two days. I won't write, you know. So for me, you know, 2,000 is an achievable goal. And, you know, most days I can get there. Some days I don't. So it kind of evens out, though. I think if you have a goal for me, and, again, this is for me, you know, some people don't have a goal at all and that's fine. That's the way they do it. And I listened to Craig Sylvie the other night and he was saying he doesn't see the point of having a word count goal because, you know, then you're just writing basically crap kind of thing just to get to right. your goal. 
and I definitely agree with that. And so I aim for 2,000 words, but if it's not working, I do need to stop and go, okay, well, maybe today I'm not going to get 2,000, maybe I'm only going to get 1,000, but I'm going to make sure that I know where I'm going kind of next. So it's kind of a a loose goal. Some days might be 1,000 days, some days might be no words, other days might be 3,000, but that's sort of what I aim for. And then I do pretty much write from beginning to the end. I use Word. So someone asked me the other day, what program do you use Um, on Instagram? Like just boring old Word. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I had no other authors who will do a chapter in each, you know, a document per chapter and then put it all together at the end. I literally write the whole book from start to finish in one document. And I have a terrible, terrible habit that I tried to kick a bit last year. And that is that I have to read the whole book before I start each writing session. The whole um, thing. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. So it's okay <laughs> when you've written like a chapter because, you know, that takes maybe 20 minutes and you tweak things as you go. Yeah. And that was, I think, my original sort of process and that's how my, I have a quite clean draft by the end is you read yesterday's session and it kind of gets you in the zone and you fix things not major big things but you know little grammatical errors or word choice and stuff like that but then somewhere along the lines I stopped just reading the previous you know day's work and start at the beginning and skim through I don't read it word for word but I do read quite a lot yeah and so yeah. you know when I've got 100,000 words and I'm nearing the end, that can take me two or three hours. And then I feel like I've done a day's work and I'm tired. And yeah. I don't do anymore. So it's a terrible thing to do. So I would not recommend that. And I've tried to kick it um, a little bit lately. But yeah, ideally, I'd have time once the first draft is done to let it sit and read over. But I'll be honest, for one point I was writing a couple of books a year and so basically there was not much time really yeah. in between editing and the other books and promotion to and you know let it sit and also somewhere along the lines I used to be ahead of deadlines and now I'm very much just getting it done at the so there's often not much time to revise before I submit a book it's clean but yeah it can depend you know some books require more work after that point still and others not as much so yeah I don't know. Did I answer that question? <laughs> Absolutely. And you were saying with all the other commitments you have, obviously you've got children, you've got three kids and you've got your social promotions and promoting the, the book that's coming out and all that sort of thing and, and then writing another one. Have you got a set routine in terms of when you sit down to write, how long you spend and do you do your social media at a certain time or how do you juggle all those things in your life? Well, in theory, I do have a pretty good routine, I suppose, but I'm very bad procrastinator. So my routine is that my kids are all luckily now at school full time. And so I work basically school hours. I will come home from, you know, drop off or whatever. And I have at least, I was about to say half an hour, but let's be honest, it's more like an hour (laughs) of, of what I call faffing around time. And that's, you know, checking emails, doing any sort of admin. Like I know a lot of people say, you should get your writing done while you're still fresh. And I do prefer to write in the morning. If I do anything in the morning else, apart from, you know, my computer, like if I have an appointment or anything, I'm basically stuck the rest of the day. So I, I protect my writing time a lot in that I won't schedule appointments if I can absolutely help it until the afternoon so that writing gets done. That's my first priority in the morning. But I do feel like I need to go through my emails and it kind of just gets me in the zone. I think just doing a bit of Facebook, Instagram, going through my emails and then I do that. So that's kind of my faffing. But then I saw my getting in the zone, which is then reading the whole manuscript, which is yeah. what we're not going to do. Don't anyone do it. <laughs> so that takes, you know, another half an hour. So I aim to fully start writing by about 9, 9.30. And then I will write in sprints often. That definitely get the best words done. If I'm doing sprints, I've got a couple of writing friends and we'll say, if we're, we're all writing a first draft at the same time, We'll say, okay, no one check their email or Facebook or anything from, you know, 9.30 to 10 o'clock. They're in the Eastern States, so, but, you know, and and then report back. And I'm much more likely to get a good chunk and not procrastinate by going onto Facebook or email because otherwise I'll write one sentence and then say, oh, I wonder what's happening on Facebook. I recently did a social media brief course and one of the things which I do think I can improve on is, is not being there almost all day but scheduling time to reply to comments and things like that. So I'm going to work on that a little bit more that, you know, I've got the morning and then maybe at lunchtime and then maybe in the evening while other people are, you know, doing other things. You can, but, but really trying to prioritise the writing time during the day. Yeah. So. so you've already said, Rach, that you're a procrastinator, which I can again relate to, but <laughs> do you have any tips for listeners 
on getting out of that procrastination state or overcoming it? I'm trying to put my phone in a different room now because I find I'm worse on like Instagram and stuff at procrastinating than Mm. so I can close a a window down but my phone feels like it takes I scroll more and waste time more whereas if I'm on my computer I feel like it's more business type stuff my biggest procrastination thing is actually online window shopping sometimes it's actually online shopping and a lot of that stems from Instagram too so I think the tip would be for me I probably need to tell myself is is unfollow a lot of people or mute a lot of people and just, you know, check them when you think about it or when you want to and not just get lost down that rabbit hole. But I think it's just self-discipline. I don't think there's any secrets apart from going, I really want to achieve something. And the only way I'm going to achieve that is if I don't do something else for a while. Again, it's a bit like diets. <laughs> That's right. And, and finding, you know, finding what works for you. Hmm. With your draft, so you said you are chronological, you start at the beginning, once you've got your characters, you go through to the end, you allow around four months to do that generally. Can you think of any times when you've really hit a wall with some of your stories and you just get stuck and and what do you do in those instances? Yeah, I can tell you a very recent one. So the book that I have just finished revising um, it's called Outback Secrets, supposed to be coming out at the end of the year. I started this book, I would say, August. It would have been sort of the beginning of August. And basically I, I realised looking back that I didn't know my characters well enough and there wasn't really a, a, enough of a plot. I was trying too hard, I think, if that makes sense, because I knew I had to write a rural romance and knew it had to be set sort of a Christmas time. And I had a character from a previous book, so I was kind of having to manufacture the heroine to fit that and I got it wrong the first time I wrote 30,000 words and I wasn't feeling it I liked the Mm. characters and this is the hard thing when this happens because certain phrases I really loved but then I decided no I wasn't I was actually feeling physically ill I don't know if you get that panel if your book's not working where you actually feel sick I would wake up and think oh my gosh I've got to write this book and it's not working but I need to write it because it's due in December you know and I was like what do I do do I keep going and And I talked to some writing friends, particularly my critique partner, who knew what I was trying to do. She knew what the conflicts were and the the goals. And she's like, it's all there. You've got two characters who have goals, who've got conflict. It's you, (laughs) basically. She's saying you're the problem. (laughs) You're the problem. Not the book. And she's probably right. But I was like, that may be the case, but I'm not feeling it. So one day I just had a nap (laughs) when I should have been writing. We went up north to visit my husband who lives up in Newman at the moment and I was like, okay, I'm just going to write 500 words of this horrible book a day. I'm just going to write 500 words while I'm up there because then at least I'll be, you know, staying in the zone. And and then one day the thought of writing my 500 words either, I was like, oh, I'm just going to have a nap. And I woke up from that nap and I was like, I have to start again. I have to completely start again. It's I had 30,000 words. It gets worse, Pam, because then I thought, (laughs) okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to find a different character. And I came up with a completely different hero and I kept the hero because I had to. So he was the book, the book's about the pub, the pub and he's the publican. So I kept him because he's from the previous books and I brought a completely different character in, fell in love with this lady. Her name was Bridget after Bridget Jones' diary. Her mum was reading the book in hospital and she thinks she was cursed because, you know, of her name with men. She was a librarian, come back to town. Her brother had just um, died and it was through bright, horrible, tragic circumstances and that's why she gets drunk and goes in the pub and it all worked really well. But there was other parts of it that just wasn't working. The time that she needed to be in town, she was putting on a pantomime as well. Anyway, I, I wrote 35,000 words with her and I thought, I love this story, I love the characters, I love the idea of it, but it's just not working. Oh, no. And I can't even really explain. It was more the timeline thing with this. I needed their relationship to be progressing, but at the same time, the timeline of the book, you can't put a pantomime on very quickly. So it's hard to explain, but basically that wasn't working either. And my crit partner again is like, Rachel, you're stupid. It is working. You, you have the conflict you have characters you have a, a plot I was like I don't know it's it's just not working I can't do this and so then I started to start again and by oh this time God. it was the middle of November and it's due the third, it was due the 4th of January but so I'd 60 written 65,000 words of a of two different versions and I started again I was like well okay Rachel you, you can't stop this has to be it because <laughs> I think my fear by this stage was is it something in my head that for some reason I've hit a mental kind of block and 
it's not, it isn't the words, it's me. And my fear was, okay, I could write another 35,000 words or maybe 40 this time. And then I'd hit the same feeling. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if that happens, basically my career's over. I can't, because <laughs> I don't know what to do. Or I'm just going to have to keep writing, you know, and no matter what, how I felt in 30,000 words, I'm going to have to stick with it. And I did. And I changed the heroin again. And I think this is how sometimes if you're not feeling it, it's horrible, but you've got to trust your gut. I changed this heroin to an ag pilot and she was much more rural than my other two. And one of my feelings about the book was that it wasn't rural romance enough and that wasn't what it was supposed to be because I had a public and hero and the other two heroines were not rural really. And so as soon as I changed her to an ag pilot, and I went back to basics, like with romance tropes, I asked another reviewer friend, what's her favourite trope? And she said she really enjoys fake relationships. I'm like, okay, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And so then (laughs) I sort of had it with these tropes, you do have a bit more of a plot. I knew something had to happen that was going to make them decide to have a fake relationship. And then certain things happen in those type of stories. So that helped me. I think it gave me a little bit of a security blanket in that I had that sort of plot structure to follow. And I managed to write that. I did it in eight weeks over school holidays and summer and it was not ideal. And every summer I say to myself, I think we may have talked about this before, I'm not going to write, you know, I'm going to somehow yeah. <laughs> manage my writing, but I'm going to have the summer off. And so far I've never managed to make that happen. In fact, I get worse and worse like this time. But anyway, I submitted this book. So Sean's Rural Romance I'd written, it was only 100,000 and most of my books are quite a lot longer. And I thought, I really love this character and I really love the hero. Yeah, it probably needs work as all books do. But I think I've managed to finally conquer it after, you know, but then my publisher came back to me and she said, yeah, I'm not feeling Henry. That's the heroine, actually, Henrietta. She's like, she doesn't really have an arc. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're right. <laughs> you know, so the long story is even after you've been published, you know, many times, these things mm. can sometimes happen. And I always said, I said to her, look, if it's really terrible, please just tell me. I mean, as hard as it is to take, I'd rather it not proceed to the next stage than put something out that's, you know, yeah, really, really bad. No, I think we can, I think you can, you can fix it basically. And these are the problems that you had. So I've spent a month now rewriting that book again. And I think I've pretty much rewritten every single word almost. It's the biggest oh, rewrite. Really? But I do believe after that experience, and then there's been a couple of other books where I've thought two thirds of the way through, this is not working and I can't finish it, but I have to. And they've been ones that require a little bit more rewriting or editing, you know, structural edits. I, I believe, and I'm saying I think that every book is salvageable, and that's a big call in a way because I. Know, but I feel like it might just take a you know longer to do, and it's not always worth salvaging. You know, sometimes the work that it would take to to salvage a book, you may as well just go, okay, I cut my losses. I'm going to start something new. But I do think almost every book can be saved if you give it the right, you know, attention. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if you listened to the Sophie Hannah interview that I, I did, did a few weeks yeah. ago, and she's got this thing she calls literary diagnostics. And in her podcast, she talks about she loved that um, TV show House, and she likes to think of herself as, you know, the doctor <laughs> getting getting the manuscript and doing like a literary diagnostics thing on it and looking at where it can be brought back to life, you know. And I think I tend and to does she, agree. Does she think most manuscripts are fixable? I think she would say that, you know, if you can identify where the, the problems are, yeah, that that's a big part of it and then work out, okay, what are you going to do to fix that particular yeah. thing? Like you say, it could be the character arc or it could be something to do with the character's motivation or whatever. Yeah, so. I think one important point is also it, it can happen but you need time away from it. Mm. So when I submitted that book after eight weeks, I, so I thought it was okay. I knew it would need work, but I, I couldn't do any more because I'd been so intense on it. I needed to let it rest. And because of timing, I, I just said to my publisher, look, it probably needs work, but here it is. And I could take another two weeks and still it wouldn't be any good, better because mm-hmm. I need that break from it. And I feel like that's the same with the revisions I've just done. I've just done a month of revisions. I'll still have to do structural edits probably and then copy edits. I added a lot into this mess. Like it went from 100,000 to 118,000 words, added plane crashes and a whole load of other things and a fear that the heroine has. But obviously there's still work that could be done. But I was again at a point where I couldn't do any more. I needed to just have a break. So it's yeah. better than to give it to somebody else to read, depending on whether you're aspiring or a pub, whether that's your agent or a trusted critique partner. I think there does come a point where you need to step away for a little bit. And it's amazing then when you come back, not that it's easy, but 
yeah, well, you know, could that be a perspective, I think, yeah. you, you know, you've had that break yeah. and that mental space to just come back to it with a slightly fresher, fresher eye. You. Exactly. You know, and you've talked a bit about having critique partners. So when you're doing, say, your draft, for instance, mm-hmm. do you show anybody anything while you're in that draft stage? So my mum always reads sort of probably in chunks, yeah. but she does more just to be a cheer squad and to go, yeah, it's okay, you're on, you're on the right track or also then I can sometimes discuss little plot points or whatever with her because she knows where I'm kind of going. And I've got another critique partner, Beck Nicholas, who she's the only person that I actually read all her stuff still and she reads mine. You know, in my early years of writing when I was aspiring and didn't have contracts and that I had probably about four or five people that I used to exchange work with in that. But for various reasons, either they've dropped away from writing or they are now pretty busy themselves. Or another reason is often the genres change, you know, we started yeah. trying to write one thing and now we've kind of gone in different directions and so somebody else who could give better feedback. But Beck reads everything probably in a few chunks as well, maybe four or five times, you know, throughout the book as I'm writing, I will send it to her. And probably now I'm looking at it's not so much a critique. She will pick up some things, but it's more so that then I've got someone able to brainstorm with and say, yeah. okay, now this has happened. I don't know what's happened next. And she knows what's happened. She's read it all herself. So she knows those characters. So I find that really useful. I also have a semi-better reader. I sometimes will read my drafts if I'm not sure and we've got time. And that's Brie from One Girl, Too Many Books. So she's completely yep. reader's perspective. And I think it's great having a reader perspective and a writer perspective, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. but that's that's all, Not no one else. Okay, yeah. And I suppose it's different for each book. Like you were saying with Outback Secrets, That's that was a different experience. But once you hand that draft or, you know, cleaned up draft, if you like, or revised, slightly revised draft into yeah. your publisher, is there much work that then you're doing on it afterwards in that revision stage with your publisher and editor? It definitely changes from book to book. So some books I seem to get right more <laughs> the first time and others require a bit more mouth to mouth. I don't know. But I don't usually do that. I think there's one other book where I've submitted the draft and then they've said yeah it's not quite here yet we want you to do a little bit more and sort of my publisher has given me just a little bit of guidance about where I think was this one and maybe just one wish that that happened so when I submitted just one wish that was definitely my publisher I could tell she didn't love it you know she kind of was like oh this doesn't feel like you quite have gone deep enough and then she gave me a few things she wanted me to go back and revise and again I spent a few weeks doing that and then we went to structural edits and then copy now that book has had great response I've had great mm-hmm. reviews it won the Ruby Prize for Romance Right Australia last year it probably wouldn't have in that first iteration kind okay, of thing she yeah. didn't know what she was talking about even though it was hard to hear that and it's funny I don't think you necessarily always know yourself because some of the books I've thought oh this is going to need a lot of work when I submit it they think oh it's pretty much that you're almost there and the revisions the edits have been a lot lighter so I don't think you necessarily know as well you know you're you're too close sometimes for books but rarely I get revisions before it goes to structural usually I'd submit a draft and then it goes to structural edits for the last few years I've had Di Blacklock who's fantastic at Mm. taking out my waffle so my books have gone (laughs) a little bit smaller um so we'll do a structural edit looking at the big picture of you know where the characters are consistent whether they're necessary even and then you go the tight thing one thing I always find with edits and I think this is thing a lot of aspiring authors or people who are on their first couple of contracts often unless they get wrong that's not the right word but they feel like they have to do everything that the publisher or the editor says and that's definitely not true it's your story in the end I mean I'm sure you would agree Pam most of the time they know what they're talking about and they're right but they may not be right about how to fix something. They may know something's wrong, but, you know, it's your book. And I think there's always that domino effect too. So they'll say, you know, for instance, my Outback Secrets, it was in two weeks and, she, and my publisher was like, I'd really like it to take place a little bit longer, a longer period of time so, you know, they can get to know each other better and doesn't feel so rushed, the romance. But that changed a whole load more things yeah. to a publisher. It was like, oh, just extend it slightly. But I'd set everything up in two weeks and it was like a domino effect. Once you change that, you basically have to change every single thing. But that was okay. I thought she was right deep down. But there's been other things in my book history where I've got a big change to make or, you know, they've made a major suggestion 
Say, for example, I wrote a book called The Patterson Girls. It was about a family curse. I don't, this is kind of a spoiler, so, <laughs> but it's been out <laughs> for a while. So there's a possible incest twist towards the end of that book. And my publisher was wary about that, you know, because it's quite, I write, you know, mainstream, nice commercial fiction. We don't want to, you know, rock the boat too much kind mm. of thing. And so she said, I'd rather you do something else or just finish the book here without this sort of, and I really didn't think it should be finished there. I felt like it needed that extra thing that I had. But I thought, okay, what else can I do instead that would do have the same kind of effect, but not incest, but the same effect sort of of the in the plot? And I came up with five ideas, and then I had a different editor at the time, same publisher. So, so other people don't know, and it changes from house to house. But for yeah. me, my publisher doesn't actually do the specific edit; she sort of gives overall feedback. But then I have a specific editor, and the editor agreed with her to start with on the incest thing, and then he's like, "No, you're right," because I gave him some other options. And he's like, none of them work. He said, this twist has to do five things. And I really wish that I'd kept his list of notes. Oh, yeah. Because I should have kept that notebook, example. I know. He <laughs> said, the twist has to do five things at this specific point. Your possible incest does every single one of those things, whereas the other ideas that I'd come up, they did two or three and they didn't quite, you know, work. So I fought for that and said, no, I'm not going to change that. It's staying the way it is. And there's been other examples like that. And so... One question I always ask myself, which I think might be useful for other people, is when you do get major big revision or structural edits and you think, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that, I always ask myself, do you not want to do it because I'm lazy and let's face it, I am lazy and rewriting is hard. It's very, very hard. It takes time. It's painful. It's like taking a jigsaw puzzle out and then taking all the pictures off and then putting it back together. I don't know. But it's it's hard work. So I'm very lazy and I don't want to do it if possible. And we all hate killing our darlings and losing specific, you know, lines that will not fit in them. So it's horrible. So I always ask myself, do you not want to do it because you know it's going to be a lot of work and you really can't be bothered? Or do you not want to do it because you think what you originally had is right for the story? And if I think it's right for the story, I will fight and I will not change it. Mm. And so I really think that's something that yeah, aspiring writers should be careful about. You know, even an editor, it's one person's opinion. Yeah. Um, so don't do anything that you feel, you know, completely is ruining what you think is the essence of your story. On the flip side, though, you can't be too precious. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to learn to edit and rewrite. So it's a, it's a matter of working out yeah, what you think's worth fighting for, fight for those things and then give them everything else. I think that's really good advice. I had a similar thing with Cross yep. My Heart. The editor, you know, great feedback on everything but really wanted me to change the ages of oh, the two girls and make them younger when a particular incident happened and okay. also have like a repressed memory, like a genuinely repressed memory instead of somebody that just not wanting to remember something. Yep, yep. And, and you decided if not. I changed both of those things, it would have, change the character's motivation completely that's the basis of the story exactly I also think sometimes like the editors I mean they're busy people like us you know they read the book with very closely and they do put a lot of effort in but it's like sometimes you can say oh this needs to be changed or I like this but then I feel like they don't necessarily follow through on what that means for the rest of the book if that makes sense yeah but we have to go okay yep well if I change that what's that and then then that can show the problems whereas they've said why don't you just do this thinking that's a great solution but not necessarily thinking about all the things that's going to affect for sure it's a bit like you know your children better than anybody else you know (laughs) if you change if there's something about them that really needs work you you know what it is generally not always (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what about with How to Mend a Broken Heart? How did that whole drafting process go? You know, you said you wanted to write the story in New Orleans and, and you had these ideas that you wanted to develop. How did all of that work for you with that particular story? Well, with How to Mend a Broken Heart, I think I wrote, it's interesting because I wanted to write the story, but my publisher was wary of being a sequel to women's fiction. You know, sequels yeah. work really well, I think, in romance and obviously series in romance and crime and stuff, but... There was, she was giving me a lot of feedback on, on big name authors sometimes that had done a sequel to a book that was really popular and the sequel in general they didn't do as well. And so she was very much really wary about me doing a semi-sequel. Yeah. So I had this idea again for quite a few years and I think as we talked about earlier that can be a bad thing because in some ways, you know, you think too long. But it also was a good thing because it was kind of developing. While I was writing another number of other books, I always had this story in the back of my head I knew I wanted it to be in New Orleans and I knew I wanted to have this Miss Havisham character. So I had that for quite a long time 
developing, but that didn't mean it was smooth sailing. When I, so I wrote about 30,000 words in between contracted books, knowing that my publisher didn't want it, <laughs> but I was between edits and submitting something. Yeah. I thought, I'm just going to use this time to, to write it because I was really passionate about writing it. And I think that really helped because I really wanted to write this story. It really helped me in the process of wanting to sit down the computer. And so it was kind of like a passion project, I guess, if that makes yeah. sense, because it wasn't contracted to start with. And then my agent and I did give the publisher the first 30,000 words and still she was a little bit like, oh, you know, I don't know, but if you really want to write it, then okay, <laughs> you know. And so I wrote this one quite fast too because it was like, okay, well, then we're going to, you have to write it by now so we'll put it out for Mother's Day. And I think for me writing fast is the best thing. When I say writing fast, that's my writing fast and everyone's yeah. writing fast is different. So but that's like doing like, your 2,000 words a day or something. Yeah, that's my best case scenario because then I'm staying in the story and I don't have as much time to, to doubt. So it's hard to talk about without spoiler about my Miss Havisham character. Mm. But interesting that you talked about repressed memories because there's a little bit about memories in this book in terms of do we always remember things the way they actually happened or does this time change our memories? So I was really fascinated with that kind of concept too. But there was a few things that I wanted to happen with the Miss Havisham character that I didn't actually know whether I could pull it off. So a lot of the time while I was writing, I was thinking, am I writing towards this thing that's going to happen at the end and it's actually not going to make any sense? And so that was a little bit you know, daunting. Yeah. But at the same time, I really kind of wanted to do it. But because I don't plan a plot, you know, spoiler here, the main character is not really that big a spoiler. The main character's ex turns up in New Orleans as well. And I didn't know that was going to happen necessarily until I was about 40,000 words into the book. And then I thought, oh, this would work better if this happened. So then I'm kind of writing towards that. So I sort of do plot, but in my my new, sort of micro, maybe it's micro plotting. Like I start and then I think what's going to happen in the next few chapters. And then I write sort of a few notes about that and I go another few chapters and then I think ahead. And, and it works mostly, although sometimes I really do feel like I'll, I'll halt for a couple of days because I know that say I want these two to get together and kiss or something but I don't know how to do it organically. And I guess that happens with plotters as well, you know, because they've got, well, this is going to be a kiss and this is going to be murder discovery or whatever, but how those things actually happen. And so then I find that I sometimes do have to stop. And that's why I'm, that I should always account for this in the beginning when I'm planning time. And I'll just have to think about it for a few days. And sometimes I'll just keep trying at the computer. Other times I'll step away, go for a walk, read a book or whatever. And I'm learning that it's usually better if I step away, actually. And it's so hard to do because you think, oh, I'm wasting a whole day. I'm not getting any words and stuff. But it's usually better if I, I can just step away and percolate and think. I sort of relate to what Craig Silby said when I was listening to him the other night in that actually writing 2,000 words, it's not always the best way because if the words are flowing and you know what you're doing, then it's great to have that goal and to it helps to stop procrastinate because you're like, oh, right, you know, this much and I'll keep going but if you don't know what you're doing or you need to really think about the scene then just aimlessly writing 2,000 words it could yeah. take you off on a you know you have to fix it so I think it's a matter of really thinking about your writing process and what you're writing I should say although I don't plot overall so each chapter I will have a page in my notebook and I'll write what's the point of this chapter some's more airy-fairy and I'll write little um snippets of dialogue that might come to me while I'm thinking about that story so you know I've got chapter four here mysterious benefactor Liam visits the library Liam left his book behind so did he do it on purpose so I'll write that sort of stuff you know daily kind of thing so if I'm writing chapter two I'll write notes about chapter two so I have a vague idea kind of what I'm doing as I go along but it's much more micro plotting than overall yeah and are you someone that when you go to bed at night, the story's oh, yes. working around in your head or do you just like to sh try and shut off from the story and start fresh again the next day? A bit of both, actually, which I know sounds really weird. I always read at night, but after I've finished reading, whatever, I will think about my own story just a little bit kind of to have it in my head and then think about it again when I wake up in the morning if I'm lying there in that kind of half yeah. asleep, half awake but, I mean, I have voices in my head all night, which is really annoying. And if there were my characters' voices, that would be good. But it's just random, random people. <laughs> so, yeah, I think 
a lot of writers find sleeping and switching off difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days with so much social media in every job and the access via email and, you know, mobiles and stuff, I think so many people are never switching off from their actual jobs. But with a creative job like writing, you know, you, as you said, with walking the dog or washing dishes or, you know, doing something completely different and your book is always kind of there in your head. I actually listened to Ellen Hildebrand recently on a podcast and she was saying that she plans on retiring in four years. She's got a specific retirement plan. Retiring from writing. Yeah. And she'll be 55, she said, and obviously she can do it. But she said to the people in the podcast, they were like, are you sure? Will you be able to do that? She said, yeah. She said, I totally mean it because she said, I want to live without constantly having a book hanging over my head. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I understand that. You know, it's it's a joyous thing to do in a lot of ways, but it's also very draining and it's all-consuming. You know, she said, I want to be able to hang out with my family or do that without mm. thinking, oh, what's that book and what are the characters? And it, it's one of those things hard to switch off. So everyone, you know, does it differently. But she also writes two books a year. And so that is kind of, you know, it's all-consuming. And so yeah. I understand what she what she means. <laughs> Are you doing two books a year, Rach, at the moment? Um, I have for the past few years, a couple of years again. I, did, I had a couple mm. of years where I only had one. And then last year there was two, this year there's two. Next year there probably won't be two. So, yeah, I feel in some ways for me, because I don't do a huge, like it's not historical, you know, I don't do a huge, I do that kind of research. Yeah. Or, to me, one book is not enough, but two is too much, if that makes right. sense. I, I kind of feel anxious if I'm not, you know, writing it's a weird thing <laughs> um, but then two books is too much almost that's just a bit too much pressure but one is not enough pressure <laughs> I can see where that might be the case yeah. yeah yeah and you mentioned a couple of books earlier Rachel the emotion thesaurus and the the archetypes one are there any other books that you recommend as great craft books for um, they're definitely craft in terms of you know specifics like I've got my screen here little two post-it notes that I had from last week when I was rewriting one was panic and I'd written all the different symptoms for panic so that's more like a really useful day-to-day book but I mean as much as I hate structure in terms of it, it panics me and if I think about it too much I just lose the plot completely I do like save the cat writes a novel quite a lot in terms of it gives you different types of novels and it's got I think 10 or 12 you know, yeah, different sort of genres within fiction and shows, you know, the types of notes you should hit. So I don't like to study it too closely, but I like having an overall knowledge. <laughs> just keep I it floating around out there. Yeah. I do love Big Magic and Stephen King's on writing, just in mm. terms of creativity and living a, you know, creative life, I suppose, but also using yeah, Stephen King specifically in terms of some real practical things about if you are doing this for a career and a job. He says you have to write a book within three months, basically, I think. In his- yeah, I think he's big on the first <laughs> writing thing. Yeah. I mean, and again... That's his opinion. And obviously some people take 13 years and write a brilliant book, you know, but I do resonate with a lot of he says. Recently I found this. I don't know if you've seen it, Pam, the 10. I've seen that it's about, about, but I keep meaning to check it out. Oh, yeah, Joanne no Harris, so, who wrote Chocolat and a few others. But she apparently started with a blog post of just different parts of writing and things. It's kind of like really succinct in terms of, mm. you know, this is seasons and how that affects your writing. And she's got 10 sort of ways to look at it. So I find this is a good one too because it's it's craft, but it's also business, social media. It's just the whole package of of writing, and you can dive in and out of it too. It's something you can just go, okay, like at the front, there's a great contents. You know, one's where do I start? What makes a story? Another is characterization. Another's first draft. Then your publication and beyond. So you can think, oh, I just want to know about drafting. So you can go that quite easily. But yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying that one at the moment. <laughs> things about writing, Joanne Harris. You know what? I'm going to be ordering when we. <laughs> Call, don't yes. you? <laughs> I often pick up good books from you. I think I've got that archetype sort oh, of well, talked about. And then this is the good thing about this one is I actually have read bits of it because I know that we've talked about this before. I have a habit of I've got whole shelves of um <laughs> craft writing books behind me, but most of them I haven't actually read. I just like the look of them. And it's a bit like that diet thing again. I think, okay, if I buy this book, it's gonna reinvent how I write and it's gonna be easier. 
and it's going to be I'm going to write a breakout novel that you know but never sometimes works that way maybe if I actually read them it would <laughs> yeah, well, it's finding the time to read them that's the problem yeah that's a problem yeah I just want to check Rachel I did put a post up on social media it was only yesterday and, and said were there any any readers out there or writers who wanted me to ask you any questions and one of the questions was how often do you reject what you've written and start over so you've talked about that without back secrets and somebody else asked do you think that you would write any more sequels to any of your other books I know that this one's a semi-sequel but what's your thought generally yeah. on sequels it's interesting I'm sure you've had it too Pam that whenever someone finishes a book they're like oh I want to know more and I want yeah. you need a sequel because it's and I'm always thinking no it's finished <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm that's done. It. now you can imagine what happened to them after but that's the story the thing that's important you know, the main thrust of that book has finished and, you know, you'd have to give your characters more horrible things that would happen to them or more drama and mostly I'm, you know, happy to leave them be and then find new characters to give drama to. But so there's a couple of books that I've written sequels to that I never planned to. My very first book, Jilted, I wrote a rural romance that was just to me. I didn't really know that series would maybe be a good thing or, you know, I just... So I wrote a book and then didn't even think about other characters, setting up other characters in that book to be, you know, series. But then so many people wanted more in that book world. And so a few years afterwards, um, and I learned, I think I learned from the feedback I got from that first book and Mandrat, which was my second, I did decide to write a series and I wrote um, the Bunyip Bay series because I realised that readers are always asking for more. And if they do like a world, they want to go back again. Mm. So I specifically then wrote a series, but I went back to the world of Jilted and there was only really one character in there that could have a story and she was a horrible person in my first book. So that was a bit of a challenge, you know, but I never planned it, but I redeemed this horrible character and people seemed to like her. And then Flying the Nest is one that I've got a couple of people already say they want more, Just One Wish, The Patterson Girls. But most of those books to me, Flying the Nest possibly because I could take another character from the, the book, well, like the world of the book and then and make, show you their story. Patterson Girls about four sisters. To me, it's done. And I, one thing I have learned, I think, through writing Outback Secrets too, I'll admit one of the reasons I decided to write that book was because people kept saying they wanted more and more from the Bunyip Bay series, but I'd never planned to write. I wrote three books of series and then I wrote a fourth. <laughs> that wasn't planned, but that worked okay. And then people were still saying they want more and really the only character I had was the publican. And I love writing, reading books about pubs. I remember you've yeah. written a book about pubs, yep. and I've written one about pub before. I love books about pubs and publicans. So I thought, yeah, that's great. I'll do that and, you know, we'll give everyone the return to Bunyip Bay. But I think one of the reasons why I really struggled is because that was why I was writing it because mm. I thought people want a series book and so I've got to find something, whereas I learned through writing this that that's not the ideal way to do it, whereas Adam and a Broken Heart I did it because I had a story in my head yeah. and I wasn't prepared to write it until I had that story. Whereas with Outback Secrets, I was trying to find a story because I knew people wanted a book in that world. And so the answer is never say never because if a story comes to me, I would be quite happy to return to the world of a book, but I'm really going to be careful now about returning to the world of the book for the wrong reasons because I think you really need to have, you know, as much as pants as can, an idea of where you're going and a reason for writing the story and something you're passionate about in it, not just say, you know, oh, I need to write a book. And yeah. I think that's one of the problems when you become a career author, I suppose, like we are and you are, you know, having to produce, you know, multiple books, it's sometimes you don't have that passionate idea that comes to you and it, it's harder and you have to go looking for an idea a little bit more. And that's fine. There's been many books that I've had to sort of manufacture more than, you know, had sort of a strike of inspiration. and. You don't know, we can't always tell the difference by the time I'm finished, but I'm really wary now. I'm learning that the best way is if you have got the strike of inspiration, at least to start with something that excites you about the story rather than manufacturing an idea. So I think that makes sense. And certainly in terms of what we were talking about to do with creativity and, and having that creative well to keep diving back into yeah. and to keep the inspiration going. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Definitely. Well, we've covered so much, Rachel, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your process and just being so honest about your writing life and quirks. We are going to be do talking about four curly questions for the Patreon supporters, but that'll be in another interview. 
But if people do want to find that, they can go to patreon.com and look up Rights for Women and support the podcast there. And then you do get bonuses through that. So just before we finish, though, if you could tell us just a little bit about How to Mend a Broken Heart, when that's out and where people can find it when it comes out. Sure. Well, How to Meet a Broken Heart is out on the 5th of May and it should be available in all bookshops across Australia and New Zealand and Big W, Kmart, Target as well. And you can obviously buy the digital editions online and the audiobook. It's read by the fabulous Casey Withers, who everyone just loves. So I'm sure she's going to do a fantastic job. Yeah. And you've been signing books for Booktopia today. I have too. So, you know, there might still be some signed copies for Booktopia. I've been... Yeah, my hands are a little sore. I've been signing lots of books today. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, Rachel. I know it's going to do brilliantly. Love the cover, love the title and um, really looking. I've got my copy. I can't wait to read it, but we will Thank be talking you. again soon. Thank you so much, Pam, and everyone who listened. <laughs> Thanks, Rach. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>